Hey, welcome to Grace Church. We are walking through Judges. It's a lot. There is a lot of dark things in uh, particularly the book of Judges, but we're going to see very brightly shining is, is the gospel of Jesus Christ, but it's going to take some work, all right? And so I always say this, I really appreciate our scripture readers actually reading that. I think that is probably uh, some of the best sermon stuff that I can give you is actually the word of God. And so we're re- we choose to read through all of that because this is a story inside of a bigger, larger story that all points to the better judge, Jesus. And so this morning, as we kind of continue on from last week, I've got a, a big section to cover Uh, but I promise I will do it as quick and as clear as I can. But I'm going to walk through a couple of different headlines for us, try my best to hone in on what I believe the Spirit might have for us this morning. So first time here, or if you've been around, the storyline is this. God continues to remain faithful. His covenantal love remains steadfast, but up until this point, all right, we don't have very much left of Judges. We're at that halfway point. We've kind of hit a wall, and up to this point with his people, they have continued to do what was right in their own eyes. They've continued to be committed to this half-hearted discipleship. If you think back early on in the uh, 10 weeks ago, if you will, 10 or 12 weeks ago of, of what half-hearted discipleship looks like, this is what they're walking into. Like with their mouth, they're saying yes to Jesus, but with their actions, it's, it's whatever they want to do, what was right to them in their own eyes. They've continued to make compromises and they keep running back to the same gods and idols that actually is, enslaves them. And so where we find ourselves now is that we see God, his anger burns not at them, but for them, for his children to return to him. And so out of the love of the father, because he is love, he disciplines his children. Every father who loves their child will graciously discipline. Craig used the example of his twin boys. They want to what? Run to the street. And every week he, you know, as, as an 18-month-year-old, his twins, he has to course correct them. He has to lovingly say, you can't keep running towards the street because the father loves his children. So he disciplines He is love. He never abandons them. As you can walk back and see, he's faithful to them, but he does discipline them just like any good father would do. So we see in chapter 10, God says, he's been a little bit quicker up until this, but last week we saw in chapter 10, God says, hey, I've done all of this. And you people, my children, continue to run back to the idols of your heart. So he tells them in a kind, compassionate, gracious gracious, but also stern in a bit righteous anger, he says, then go back to them. Go back to them. If that's what you want, go back to the idols of your heart and let them deliver you. Scripture says God sold them into the hands of their enemies. And in the historical pattern we see over and over again, they go they're remorseful, remorseful of their actions, but they're not really repenting the, the heart sin, the heart issue, if you will. They really just don't like being oppressed. They don't like being uh, suffering at the hands of their oppressors, the same ones that they go back to over and over again. And so they cry out, as is the pattern, but nonetheless, they get rid of their foreign gods, we saw, and they turn to the Lord and they begin to worship him. And scriptures say that the Father... Craig did a great job of covering this last week, actually became weary of Israel's misery. The father sees this, knows this, and actually became weary 
of their misery. So this is where we see the next judge show up. Again, Craig did a great job. Last week, he introduced us to Jephthah. Jephthah arrives here, and, and what, we know this, what we know is this about him. He was the son of a prostitute similar to Abimelech. If you think back a few chapters ago, we saw Abimelech come onto the scene, uh, was the son of a prostitute. Same thing with Jephthah. Craig described him as a crime boss who led a band of outlaws. You can read through chapter 10 and see that that is true and accurate in that he had a way of being a shrewd negotiator. And we're going to see that play out. But here's the deal. Jephthah was not the ideal, likely choice for a leader. Like, clearly, just like any other judge, it's real easy. Hindsight's always 20-20 where you're like, that is a mistake. Why is he in that position? Of course it's going to fail. Of course it's going to crumble. But God, yet again, what does he do? Choose the unlikely in order to deliver his own idol-worshiping people. Does that sound familiar? He uses the unlikely. Maybe not. It does to me. But what we're going to see here shortly throughout our entire interaction with Jephthah is this. If we're not careful, and I want you to hear this this morning, we can allow culture to influence above the word of God. If we're not careful, we can look around at all of our media sources, all of the social media, all of other things. If you want to know what it says about this, there are millions of blogs out there and other preachers and other things outside of the actual word of God. And if we're not careful, then we're going to allow culture to influence us above the word of God. There is a God that everybody wants. Even those who say they don't, they want something. Now, they might be the God that they want. Like, I want to be the God of my life. Everybody has a God that we want, but there's also a God who is. They're not the same God. So let's dig in. Up to this point, they're on the brink of war. They turn to this new crime boss leader, Jephthah, and he immediately steps into an argument. As Ari just read through, he steps into this argument with the Ammonites. Now, they're angry. They want their land. They're now looking and saying, where is our land? We want this back. What's interesting here is his approach is actually honorable. Jephthah's approach is terrible of a leader that we're going to see in just a minute. Like, you heard the story, but it, we'll get there. But up to this point, he, he does, he steps into this argument in a very honorable way. The tension's high. And look what he does. Instead of drawing a sword, he actually draws his, on a pen and writes and pens a, a letter, if you will. He goes back to his shrewd negotiating skills, and in doing so, he begins to ask some questions. He writes to the king. Now, this is just for time's sake. This is my paraphrase here. He writes to the king of the Ammonites. Okay, this tension's high. They're ready to go to war. And he says, hold on just a second. Why are you attacking us? What have we done to deserve this, and like a pen pal would, it's like this relationship between the king and Jephthah, back and forth, back and forth. The Ammonite king, he writes back and he says this, well, when your people, you, your people came out of Egypt, you took our land. Give us our land back and we can live in peace. Like this is old beef, right? Like this is, this didn't just happen. Hundreds of years, 300 years later, this, guy, this king shows up, the Ammonites, and they're like, hey, yeah, we, we want our land back. 
They've apparently been really bitter for an extremely long time. Many years have passed, and they're ready to go to war to get what they think is their land back. So in all of his wisdom, believe it or not, Jephthah sends one final message back. Now, I say it's honorable because I think he asks good questions. Starts with the why. Why are you wanting to attack us? He slows down. He writes a letter. He doesn't draw his sword. He actually comes to the table and I guess this is their way of texting back and forth or phone call, whatever it is. He's, he's asking these questions. He listens to their beef, and then he addresses them with truth, truth that they would have known about. I think there's wisdom there. So here, here's what he says. He sets the, the record straight. He recalls the historical truth that she just read of what actually did take place. He walks the king graciously, through how they got to where they're at. He recounts the events of Israel when they came out of Egypt. If you think all the way back to the Exodus, okay, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, let my people go. Okay, God delivers them through the Red Sea. Now they come out. They're they're leaving Egypt. They're looking for this promised land. The Lord is leading them. They came to a land full of pagans, and they asked for permission to pass through the land. And this land of pagans, God did not allow them to pass. The pagans said no. People refused, so they traveled towards the land that the argument is now about. Okay, so, so just track with me on that. This is the argument, this is the land that this argument is about now. And so the Israelites, years ago, they traveled, the pagan land said no, and so they're heading towards the land that is up for, or that they think is up for grabs now. North of Arnon and south of the Jabbok rivers, this is where the Amorites were living. And under King Sihon, they attacked the Israelites. But what happens is Israel actually won the battle. So Jephthah says, hold tight for just a second. I hear what you're saying. Let me address this with biblical truth that you actually know. And he calls this, he says, my ancestors won that land outright by means of conquest. Not only is this argument not about you, this piece of land has nothing to do with you. Let me remind you that the Lord actually gave us this land. So the judge says, let me recall to the Lord, he is the one, Yahweh, that gave us this land. What does he do? He appeals to Yahweh. In our conflict, I don't know how many times we're appealing to Yahweh or if we're just appealing to our own, um, we just want to be right. I told you so. Like we're just appealing to ourselves. Even if it's facts, even if it's truth, I think, I think we do a terrible job of arguing many times. And so Jephthah, when he appeals to Yahweh, he looks, well, writes, and I just imagine this interaction. Like, you know him, right? Like, you, you know who I'm talking about, King? Yahweh. Yeah, he handed the land over to us. And in wise and an almost kind of a, a backhanded remark, he uses their own worldview. Now, this is key. He uses their own worldview of the gods of the culture, and he says, and what did the land, and what land did your gods give you? He's not boastful at what Yahweh did. He just states the truth, and then he looks at them and uses their own culture against them and says, and what did your gods give you? Yahweh gave us this land. The land that you're fighting about isn't even yours. Yahweh gave it to us, and where did your gods, what did they do for you? Meaning, if their God would have intervened for them, they wouldn't be having this argument, right? Their God would have stepped up to the plate, and they would have this land. And then he closes out 
this final letter to his pen pal with, one, uh, with another straightforward remark, and it says this, hey, we've been here for 300 years. Why would you decide to fight for this now? Now, Jephthah, he argues honorably, and he proves to them that they were in the wrong, not God's people. Clearly, he does that. He's not only, uh, he not only appeals to and recounts the faithfulness of Yahweh then, he now uh, appeals to Yahweh in the here and now. He says, let the Lord decide. So he's right. He just won this argument, but look what the honorable Jephthah does because he knows Yahweh. He knows enough about Yahweh to say, hey, let's just let him decide. And so in verse 27 and 28, he says, I have not sinned against you, but you are doing me wrong by fighting against me. Let the Lord, who is the judge, decide today between the Israelites and the Ammonites. And so the king ignores the facts and like a little kid replies with something probably along the lines of, well, so... And then we see what happens. The king of the Ammonites would not listen to Jephthah's message that he sent him. We're going to get to the ugliness, but I want to, with every judge, because it is a foreshadowing of the better judge, I think there's some things that we can learn here. The king was hurling, hurling all sorts of accusations and insults at Jephthah and all of the Israelites. Like he was ready to fight, but what is Jephthah's response here? Let the Lord decide. Let's, let's let the Lord decide this. Let's take this to him. I wonder, to, to kind of lean into our hearts, I wonder how we handle accusations against us or the ones we love. There's all sorts of accusations flying in this pen pal exchange here. You did this. You didn't do this. You took our land from us. Like, I wonder, how do you handle accusations against you or the ones you love? Especially when we actually don't commit the sin against those hurling the accusations. When someone does you wrong, what is your approach? Roll the sleeves up, prove them wrong, go to war. I'm speaking to myself here. I'm a roll-the-sleeves guy kind of of guy. You're going to say that about me, about my family? Like, I remember in high school, like, my my football coach, I'm sure he was just a phenomenal football coach. It doesn't matter. What matters is I was very loyal to my coach, and there would be times after a game where my dad had had a suggestion or an idea, and I remember, like, over and over again, like, I just don't understand why coach wouldn't do this. And I, one day I was like, hey, Leave him out of this. I trust him. And I remember my dad being like, dude, you are one loyal guy. Like my dad's coming at this guy that I actually looked up to, was a believer, that I wanted, I would follow into war, like roll my sleeves up, let's go. And if somebody came against him and the accusations weren't true, or even if they were true, I'm ready to rock and roll, ready to go. So how do you respond when someone does you wrong? What is your approach? Now, as bad as it's about to get again, just like with all the other judges, Jephthah's appeal here to the Lord actually gives us an example of how to answer unfair accusations. 
But just like with any of the judges, they foreshadow the better judge that is to come. Let me just say, Jesus committed no sin. No deceit was ever found in King Jesus' mouth. And what was the result? His accusers hurled their insults at him. His reply, he chose not to retaliate. When he suffered at the hands of those same people, he made no threats. Instead, what does he do? He entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Tim Keller says this, We follow a Savior whose truth was mocked and whose righteousness was ignored and yet who compromised on neither. Christ supremely left us an example of how to answer unfair accusations. Let the Lord decide. He is faithful, loving, kind, compassionate, and yes, he is just. The justifier of the inexcusable. You, the inexcusable, he justified you. So, unfortunately, it doesn't always turn out in a peaceful manner. I wish I could say the, everything was resolved, but we've read the end of the chapter We know what's about to happen. The king says it's go time. He rolls up his sleeves, wants nothing to do. So part two, as we kind of see 29 through verse 40, uh, it's in this moment, after this, he responds, Jephthah responds faithfully, accurately, honorably. It's in this moment we see the Spirit of God come over Jephthah, and he began to prepare his men for battle. There was no other option. God didn't intervene at this point, but we also know God says he will intervene for him. If his spirit of the Lord is on him, we know that that's enough, right? So over the next few verses, something changes, though, in Jephthah. He just recalled Yahweh's faithfulness beautifully, just recalled to his enemies the faithfulness of God. The spirit of God is on him. We just read this. You can see that. Spirit of God is now on him. He didn't need to do anything except trust Yahweh. But for some reason, something in his heart, said he needed more. Now, we've seen something similar along the lines with other judges so far. They've questioned God, right? Like, you can look back. They've questioned. We can look back and see that they've even tested God with the fleece. But here we see the judge make a vow to God. This is a new thing. The cycle gets worse and worse. This is now a new thing. He says, if... You deliver them over to me. If, when I return, Spirit of the Lord is on him. And he goes to the Lord and he says, If you do this, when I return from battle, whoever comes out of my front door first, I will sacrifice to you. Now, why would he make an unnecessary vow to a faithful God who has already proven himself over and over again? Why would he do that? If you do this, God, then I'll do that. I think there's a few things to consider. If is a compromise. We've talked about this over and over again. Compromise, complacency leads to compromise. If is a compromise. He should have already known the outcome, right? Spirit of the Lord was on him. He knows that. He just recounted God's faithfulness. It was decided once the Spirit of God was on him. I think Jephthah needed something bigger than Yahweh. In his mind, 
in his heart, he convinced himself he needed something bigger because he didn't fully trust God. And unfortunately, he makes a careless and detrimental mistake by making a vow to a God who doesn't ask for anything in return. God didn't ask him to make a vow. Never asked him. Jephthah, not trusting, goes to a, a God, and we're about to see what happens. Full obedience to him is what he lacked. Just trust me. Jephthah says, I'll trust you if. God is saying, trust me. And he looks at them and he says, I'll trust you if you do this. I wonder, where do you find yourself saying, if God does this, then I'll do this? In your life right now. God, if you come through here, then I will fill in the blank. What area? I want you to think about this. Like, what area in your life right now are you making that compromise? If God will do this, then I will do that. Let that sit there for a second. Finances, job opportunities, parenting. If God does this, then I will do that. As you can guess, God helps him win the battle because he's faithful and kind and compassionate. He goes to battle, Yahweh intervenes, and as he returns home, as victorious judge, we would think peace was to follow because that's what happens when the judge, come, judge comes home, the appointed judge with the Spirit of God on him. When he comes home, peace fills the land. However, what happens? Homeboy made a vow. He comes home victorious. Front door opens. And it's in that moment he recalls the unneeded and the very much unnecessary vow that he made to God. Through the door runs not a goat, not a sheep. I don't know what he was thinking when he made the vow. It was not uncommon for animals to be in the house. Thousands of years ago, it's not uncommon. Maybe a chicken was going to run out. Through the doors, though, his one and only child, his daughter, comes running out. And instead of meeting her with a warm, joyful greeting, he remembers... And in anguish and fear of what was about to happen, he tears his clothes and he cries, Why? Why is it you? Why did you run out the door? I made a promise to the Lord and I cannot break it. Now I want you to understand this. This is a hard text. This is, this is dark. Child sacrifice here. God didn't make a vow to him. He made the vow to the Lord. And his daughter agrees with him, insists that her father, like what humility here. She knows Yahweh. She knows what would happen if he was to break his vow. It was a serious thing. Father's got to keep his words. And so she says, I, basically, I, I'll never be a, a mother. Let me go and mourn with my friends. Like, this, this is it. My time has come. She was turned after two months to her father, and he sacrificed her as he had vowed to do. Like, what a terrible story that unfolds right in the middle of a terrible portion of Israel's history. 
Jephthah doesn't fully trust God, and the compromise he makes is extremely costly. Like, I've tried over and over again to put myself in the shoes. Why didn't he do this? Why didn't he just break the vow? I don't know. I don't know. I'm not the holy, inspired word of God. This is the holy, inspired word of God. I have a hard time wrapping my mind around this, but I think there's a good point that we can see here. Scripture tells us that human sacrifice is detestable. It's something the Lord hates. We see that in his scripture. So why does he compromise here and follow through with such a horrific vow? Remember what I said earlier. If we're not careful, we can allow culture to influence us above the word of God. Let's think about the culture he's living in. Man, I wrestled with this all week, and this was super helpful for me. Let's think about where he's living. God's given them all over, given them all over to the, the gods, the idols of the land. The gods of this land were dark, they were deceptive, violence was normalized. It was a normal thing. Remember, he was a crime boss. Like, the dude had a band of heathens that went and robbed people to survive. Like, probably murdered people. In Ammonite culture, this is what was very interesting to me, the main god they worshipped was Melech, the god of child sacrifice. And those that worship these gods believed that they could actually pay off the gods of the land, pay off their debt to this worthless god with human sacrifices. So this was normal. Outside of God, outside of Yahweh, this was normal. There was a god that everyone wanted. There was a god who is, and they're not the same god. I need you to hear that. So over time, Jephthah, this unlikely judge, steps in, is not living in this culture. He's now been deeply influenced. He's not just living in this culture. He's been deeply influenced and shaped by it. Keller goes on and he says, he's been deeply desensitized to violence by the atrocious cruelty of the pagan cultures around him. And now we see that he has to live with the consequences of pagan works righteousness. He's made a vow to Yahweh. God didn't ask him for this, but the culture around him has shaped his view of the God who is. So instead of just trusting Yahweh, the faithful covenant-keeping king, Jephthah had believed the lie that he had to offer something other than his faith and obedience. This is what the gods of culture will do. Hear me on this. The gods would say, if you do this, the gods would say this. Jephthah says this to God, if you do this. The gods that they would worship and bow down to, the thorns in their side would say, hey, if you do this, then I'll promise this. How many times in this series have you heard me say this, idols will always overpromise and underdeliver. Like this man, empowered in this moment by the Spirit of God, treats Yahweh, the big capital G-O-D, God of the Bible, like a game show host from Let's Make a Deal. God, if you do this for me, then I'm going to make this deal with you. I'll sacrifice whatever comes out of my door for you, God. Look what I will do for you. The influence of this culture had so much diluted the worship of Yahweh in his heart. The vow he makes actually reeks of paganism. 
He knew something about God. He knew something about the power of God, but instead of trusting him at his word, he added the culture's horrific act of human sacrifice to the mix. Culture influenced this man so much that, this, that his only child was sacrificed. She lost her life. You know, the sad part about all of this is that God had already declared that he would save his people. Before Jephthah made, the rule, made this vow, God had already said, I will deliver my people. Friends, God, Yahweh, the one true king, has already declared the saving of his people before you could make any vow to God or hold up any part of what you think is your end of the deal. There's no deal for you. There's no tricks like there's no addition, nothing you could do to earn God's favor. There's, there's no if. If I do this, maybe God will accept me and love me and save me. Let me just say this. Jesus, the unlikely of all, took the if and he turned it upside down. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. God cannot be bribed, he cannot be tricked, he cannot be bought. He is the divine judge, and he says, hey, I've made a way. I've come to you through Jesus. I took the first step, and guess what? I'll take the last. Put your faith in Jesus. Turn from your sin. Ask him for forgiveness. Put your hope in him. Trust him. You can bank on Jesus. The one that will never leave you, never forsake you. The one who offers life and not death. So in closing, what do we do with this? Well, we don't make a vow like Jephthah did. Instead, we just say yes to Jesus. Keller says, the God of the Bible wants only one kind of human sacrifice. The self-sacrifice of offering God the lordship of every area of our lives. Even this is not to secure your favor, but it is in response to the favor of the Lord on your life. He died so that you can live. So our response to a humble, gracious king is to live our life in a way that actually glorifies him. Don't make the deal like Jephthah did. Instead, live your life in Christ. I'll close with Ephesians 4. Paul paints a beautiful picture of how we should live now. If you have this question, well, what does this mean? How am I supposed to live now? Paul says, you should no longer live as the Gentiles live in the futility of their thoughts. For they are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. They became callous and gave themselves over promiscuity from the practice of every kind of impurity with a desire for more and more. But that's not how you came to know Christ. Assuming you've heard about him, you were taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. Take off your former way of life, the old self, you know, the one that's corrupted by deceitful desires. Be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put 
on the new self. You know, the one created according to God's likeness and righteousness and purity of the truth. May we be a people who don't let culture shape our view of Yahweh. I think the turning point for us in our lives is when we stop seeking the God we want and start seeking the God who is. May we not just say, God is king. May we live our lives holding firm to the truth that Jesus is king. Don't exchange the truth of God for a lie. They're out there. Don't exchange the glory of God for the idols of this land. They're out there. Don't worship created things instead of the creator. It's right here in front of us. So when the world around us starts to squeeze us, you feel that? Like you, you understand what I'm talking about, right? Like you can, I'm so thankful October was a month of fasting. I, I deleted social media and that's not to boast in anything, but I will tell you, I felt more at peace not seeing the garbage that is out there. And when the world starts to squeeze, are people going to see the pagan gods of this culture or are they going to see Jesus? Father, we just come before you this morning. We thank you that you are for us. Thank you that you love us. God, you are better than anything that we could ever ask for. And so this morning, I just, in a weird way, ask this question. When the world squeezes us, what, what oozes from our soul? Is it unrest? Is it different ideologies of this culture and this world that we live in? Is it just our own opinions or is it actually the grace of Jesus? Help us, Lord Jesus, respond to your word this morning. Have freedom to, to rule and reign in our hearts. May it not be a hobby that we do. May it be a person that we worship. We look to you. Let your spirit lead us and guide us. In Jesus' name, amen.